Welcome to another live recording of Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Michelangelo Matos, who is here to talk with me about his latest book, Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, out now from Hachette Books. Michelangelo is also the author of 2015's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, and Sign of the Times, from Bloomsbury's beloved 33 and a Third series of album-focused books, that one about the Prince album of the same name. He contributes regularly to MixMag and The New Yorker and joins us from St. Paul, Minnesota. Enjoy my conversation with Michelangelo Matos. There was actually a period of time where I, I entertained moving to St. Paul, and um, I was out there in October, and it was like January in New England. And so that pretty much dissuaded me. <laughs> I thought I was tough until I went to St. Paul in October. <laughs> oh, yes. I used to date somebody from uh, Miami who refused to come here after Thanksgiving. It's <laughs> yeah, a sensible person. Um, how are you? How, how are things out there? Good. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, beavering away on another project that I cannot talk about yet. But uh, other than that, I have been good. Yeah. It's been, you know, a lot of lockdown, but I'm very lucky that I have a small circle of people that I can see. Yeah. Given that this is your um, your third book, um, are you able to uh, to sort of compare and contrast at all what the rollout is for a, a, a title, you know, in the context of lockdown versus your previous two works? Yeah, I think if there had not been lockdown, there may have been some, you know, live appearances and those can still maybe happen online. Uh, so I don't feel too terribly about it, although I certainly would have preferred to, you know, be on a DIY book tour, you know, sleeping on friends' couches here and there yeah. than just being stuck here per se. Yeah. You know, there's also been an interesting sort of time um, horizon or a time span over the course of your, your three um, titles. Um, can you talk at all about how you've seen publishing change, if at all, or is it, you know, publishing is sort of a stodgy thing that never changes? You know, what, what, what's your experience oh. been with the business? Oh, I would say the opposite. Publishing always changes. Uh, certainly, I wrote my first book while I was working at Seattle Weekly. And that was a whole a whole different time. I wrote that book in 2003 and it was published in 2004. So everything was different. And what's funny to think about then is that at the time, everybody thought, oh, this is the end. <laughs> you know, we had no idea what the end was going to be. We still don't. Um, but I feel like with the previous book, with The Underground is Massive, which came out now five and a half years ago, you know, it was a big, it was kind of a big thing for me, at least, to do a book tour, to go down the West Coast and over to the East Coast and have it kind of paid for by the publisher, which was very nice. But it wasn't, you know, I think now 
I'm the reason I haven't done more, say, online book things is simply because I, uh, you know, I think the apparatus that would have been in place for me to maybe visit some cities and talk to people in person, uh, you know, that apparatus is still there, but it's not being utilized yet for safety reasons, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm but I'm very happy because this book is with an editor and a publisher. The situation is very different from the previous book, where the person who bought the book left the company right as I finished it, and it didn't get you know it got a rollout, but there were issues within that are boring and not worth going into. Whereas this felt from the beginning like the people who wanted this book to happen wanted this book to happen. And that meant the whole team there, you know, whereas with the previous book, it was a couple of people who were very into it and the rest were fairly indifferent. Yeah. Not to not to dwell too much on the the, the inside baseball aspect of it, but it, it's something I've always wondered about. Um, and you're sort of hinting at it in that is publishing similar to what we see a lot of times um, in the music world where there is an internal advocate who is sort of the personal champion for the project. And if that person leaves or transfers or what has you, what have you, it's not quite, it's not the same to inherit a title as it is to sort of sign it from the Genesis. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't think there's any uh, evil going on there. It's just that people have different priorities and then they're handed something that they don't know much about and there's not much they can or are willing to do in some cases. But with this, it's funny. Uh, my book actually got, uh, my book was acquired for DeCapo Press, and then DeCapo Press got acquired by Hachette. And my editor, Ben Schaefer, is, uh, you know, he went with the company and he managed to retain the title into the new company, which I think is. I don't know that much about it, but I would guess is pretty rare. And to have a team, you know, the team change at DeCapo, their specialty was music books. Yeah. And at Hachette, they have a much wider range of titles. DeCapo was part of Perse- uh, Perseus Group, and that had a bunch of different sub uh, imprints that specialized in specific things. And Hachette is much more of a broad-based company. And so to have the team at Hachette who are very attuned to what I'm trying to do with the book, attuned to who we might be selling this to, according to, you know, me at least, and having their own ideas and really, it's been very nice. Uh, The book has only been out about a month now, but it came out at a weird time, which is also probably why, you know, there weren't any in-person things lined up because it was December. Uh, The book was published December 8th. And, but the rollout's been great. You know, we've been getting great reviews and it appeared on a lot of uh, best of the year lists. And I'm sure a lot of that was timing, but I'm sure, but I'm equally happy that it was on those lists because it put the book into people's faces in a very good way. Yeah, one one thing that I've perceived um, is that uh, I mean, first of all, DeCapo, I would I would almost challenge anybody who has any type of collection of music related books to walk over to their bookshelf and they would probably find that a lot of them came out on that that imprint, um, whether they're, you know, unofficial biographies or but there's just it's a great it's a great sort of catalog list of books. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you can tell in the rollout and in the coverage um, that um, having Hachette behind it, um, I, just where I see the book getting reviewed and the placements and the sort of level of um, analysis that's gone into some of the reviews, like it's it's been really great to see the book received that way and to get a really like critical take on it as opposed to like a pop culture um, type review that might that, that a regular music release might get. Sure. And I think we've been getting both, actually. Yeah, we've gotten good in-depth uh, critical reviews and we've gotten some of the more like, hey, if you're into the 80s, you're going to like this book type of things. And though and one thing that I've learned from the team is that is how important both of those things are. My inclination is definitely toward the former type of thing. But we have, uh, you know, the marketing person knows who to put this into the hands of. And that's been fantastic. You know, uh, I've been really happy to see all of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I part of the, you know, there's an annual thing that happens in Seattle every year uh, or has happened mostly in Seattle called pop conferences, which has been going on for about 20 years. And that community of people, which is a very, it's heavy on academics and heavy on journalists and writers and fans. A lot of uh, people in Seattle who are serious music lovers who may not have a role in, you know, the industry per se, or in academia, have, they always come out for pop conference. It was sad that it was online only this year, but that's been a big part of this book because several pieces in the book, the country chapter, for example, and the part about the, the Tina Turner section, those are all things that I first presented at pop conference. And the Frankie goes to Hollywood section for, is another example. So that place has been a great workshop and a great place to really you know, show what I'm working on. And it functions that way for a lot of people. Uh, and so some of the people that have been serious, you know, written very serious reviews of the book are also pop conference people. So that sort of uh, community has been invaluable just as a person working on things, seeking real feedback. Could you do me a favor and for, for listeners, could you sort of um, articulate the, the central premise or, or thesis of the book? It'll take a second, but yes, I'll try. Uh, the 1984 was maybe the busiest pop music year ever. It wasn't just the best or something as, you know, fanish as that, although I feel that way as a fan. Uh, a great deal was going on that year that would have profound effects on what the music business would be for the next 20 years. The modern music business, I wouldn't necessarily say starts there, but it coheres there. You have a mainstream that is extremely vibrant. Pop radio in that period was better than it had been in generations, in a generation, 20 years minimum. You know, the thing that everybody said at the time was that pop radio was more vibrant than it had been since the mid-60s. Uh, and that was also true of a lot of different subcultural areas. You have hip-hop on the rise. Run DMC's first album comes out, which stamps hip-hop as a serious album-based genre, as well as just a 12-inch thing, which it had been. 
and you have all of the exploitation movies of that year. Beat, uh, Breaking 1 and 2 and Beat Street and like a lot of cheap movies that were made on the fly, in some cases within a matter of weeks to beat other movies to the theaters. But, and breakdancing is in all these TV ads. The hip hop chapter focuses on a TV pilot called Graffiti Rock that was aired in many cities. And this, this, this music and this genre are about to, you know, broach the mainstream and 84 is the year that happens. Uh, and then indie rock is roiling. There's a great deal of creativity and action going on there. Uh, SST Records, which ha uh, has Black Flag, which puts out four albums in 84, and Husker Du's Zen Arcade and the Minutemen's Double Nickels on the Dime, these extremely ambitious double albums, which was unheard of for the American post-punk scene of the time. Those both come out the same day. Uh, the Replacements Let It Be is, you know, that's the record that maybe puts them on the road to the mainstream. Uh, you have dance music starting to become its own thing. Dance music was always separate from the mainstream a little bit, but it fed into the mainstream. But 84 is the year house music and techno music are really getting their feet. Um, it's also the year that African music starts to make its slow way into a American pop consciousness. And then the way that records are made in the mainstream is the thriller model. It's the tentpole album. Instead of you make an album and then you make another album and each album might yield a hit or two, the whole idea becomes these albums are packed with hits. Like thriller, they are consisting mainly of potential hit singles, often in multiple formats. So that becomes the way the record business starts to work from then on. So there's a lot of good music and there's a lot of interesting music, but the way the music business itself is working uh, becomes codified more or less in this period. Mm -hmm. One of the funnest things for me about approaching the book was, um, and I, I hope uh, at the risk of, of offending you, um, you know, my first reaction was skepticism, right? Like uh, that was the, that was, I, I remember that year quite vividly. Um, I'm a couple of years older than you based on the math uh, from, from how you articulate it in the book. But I have, I relate to, uh, there was something you said very early on in the preface about, you, you know, you tell the story about the day you were forced to clean your room and you had the radio on for hours and hours and hours and no song came on that you didn't like. Um, and it really is, um, you know, the different genre, like what, what pop meant that year and all the ground it covered um, that, that really came back to me very vividly. So, but I didn't recall that. And I didn't, I didn't, it didn't coalesce around that particular year until I dove into your book. So I came in with some skepticism. It's, you know, it's a bold, it's kind of a bold claim to, to build a book around. And then I'm about a hundred pages into it. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty large book, uh, you know, 468 pages after the index and notes, I'm a hundred pages into it. And I said, all right, point made. Like I, <laughs> I am, I'm sold on this. Um, where, like, there's another couple of hundred pages. Where else could this possibly go? And it was incredible to the the um, you know, one of the reviews described the book as sweeping, and it really is the expansiveness of the music of that year, but also your ability to um to sort of wrangle it all and articulate it all. 
um, and your definition of, of pop, you know, it truly was all of the popular music forms, whether that was jazz, hip hop, world, you know, the international music. Um, and each one of those areas was just either firing on all cylinders or on the cusp of exploding. And, um, and I, I wonder with all that said, is there, is there, what's the closest analog to that either before or since? And is there one in your mind? Well, there are all sorts of, you know, explosive pop years. Uh, 1977 would be a good example because on the one side you have disco basically taking over mainstream pop as it had been doing for a minute. And if you want to be technical, the Saturday Night Fever uh, explosion of that, you know, that movies and soundtracks popularity really takes place in 78. But the movie is released in December. And if you want to just look at 77, that's the capstone of that year. But you also, you know, it's the year of Rumors and Hotel California, all these big blockbuster LPs. But it's also the year that punk is on the rise. It's a banner year for P-Funk, a banner year for all kinds of underground music and black music. And it isn't just the mainstream. It's To me, 84 was irresistible because the more I looked back at it, the more I looked at the things that were not familiar to me from pop radio being nine years old, the more I realized, wow, all this stuff was going on at that time. And I feel like there, you know, I had wanted to write this book for a long time. And I had attempted to sell a version of this book back in 2010. And that didn't work because I had kind of, at that point, I didn't know how to write a book. I had only written the Sign of the Times book, which is not the same sort of scope. It's not like a heavily researched, heavily, uh, re you know, I didn't, that book I wrote fairly quickly and from one place, you know, uh, in terms of the viewpoint. With these last two books, it's really about a, an expansive, I'm, I'm trying to look at this expansively, but I'm also trying to make it very legible for the first timer. Uh, the idea is that, you're, that you can pick this book up without knowing anything and learn something. Yep. And, you know, and I'm explaining it so that, you know, in my mind, I want this book to be read by people who were like me then, who were like me as, teenage, as a teenager, who didn't know this stuff and were hungry to learn it all. Uh, so hopefully I've done that. But, you know, I thought for a long time, oh, you have to focus this. You have to narrow this down because that's what I kept getting told. And it just became very apparent that, no, that's not what you're going to do. That's not what this book requires. You can't, you know, there's just no way to, what I wanted to do was put it all together legibly and readably, but I didn't want to stint on anything. Yeah. And there was no reason to stint on anything. And there's a, you know, and even so, I left out things that would, you know, that I thought would for sure be in there. In certain cases, things I wrote and then ended up cutting. There are groups that were pretty important for the time that may not have been, you know, Sonic Youth is an example. Mm. 
Depeche Mode. I cut big sections on them. I cut a section on Taboulet Rochereau and Franco, the great Congolese band leaders, two of the most important musicians of the century. And because they were not breaking through in America the way the Sonyade was. So it was like, as much as I love this section, it doesn't really fit. Uh, and, you know, the, the phrase I came up with recently to sort of explain this is that the book is in the draft. When you're writing a book, you're writing a draft. You write the draft until you are satisfied that you have written everything you want to write, and then you have to turn it into a book. And that means things go. That means, that means Depeche Mode is out. Well, you you mentioned it's 2010, and I'm curious what was, what what like when was the the um the spark that that 1984 was this year that was worth exploring in that way, and and just to and before I let you answer that, I would say that I think resisting that that advice or that counsel to sort of narrow it down or when it winnow it down, I think that's exactly what took the book from being kind of um a gimmicky concept book to being something so substantial because. I think if you had stayed surface level, it would have been more of a, of a pop oriented, you would have left out King Sonny a day. You would have left out, uh, Husker do, you know, it, it would not have been as authoritative. I think if, if you had tried to winnow it, um, too much. So I think that was a good impulse. Well, my, you know, what I had attempted to sell was I had 12 chapters, each about a different specific artist. And I would have, so I would have probably had a similar amount of range. It just wouldn't have been as, uh, it would probably have been more just like individual essays rather than chapters in a book. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I just didn't quite know at that point because I hadn't written anything like it, how to do that. At that point too, I was mostly writing record reviews because you know that's what I had been doing for a decade at that point. So I, what happened is more or less that the, the, the economy for record reviewing collapsed and I started writing features and I started to realize this is much better. This is much, you know, I'm not trying to cram my insights, whatever they are, into 350 word record reviews that nobody reads. I'm actually telling stories here and that's actually getting my point across far better and reaching people far more widely than short record reviews are because short record reviews had just pretty much gone the way of the dodo by then. Yeah. Um, so with this, I, I always knew how expansive I wanted to make it. I just didn't know how to do that yet. I had to write The Underground is Massive to do that. And that's a book where I knew the parameters extremely well. I knew where to find the information I was looking for. And I knew who to talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, with this book, it's much more research heavy, although I did talk to uh, the number. The final number, as I determined, is 36 people. Three people that I had spoken with for The Underground is Massive that I wound up utilizing that material here. And then three people that I wrote questions for that other people did the interviews for uh, in the Husker Du chapter. But, and then 30 people I spoke to strict uh in intentionally for the book and for other projects that led into it so yeah i i feel like that was the that is certainly the advantage of the book because you want people to get the whole breadth of the thing getting my head around what the breadth of it was and how i would tell the story is what took some time 
It took about a year and a half from my committing to do it for real this time and actually having the outline because I was just burying myself in research because I wanted to, you know, I didn't, it, it is a hard book to thumbnail. It's a hard book for an elevator pitch. And I think a lot of time book editors don't trust that. They think, oh, you don't have any control over this thing. And it's like, no, I have very, no, I do. I absolutely do. You just aren't used to that. <laughs> and that's your problem. <laughs> the, I think one of the other things that, that really helps the book succeed and probably bears mentioning um, is that, you know, it isn't just this slice of one year. It's, um, it's contextualized in what came before and after. And I think it's, it's important to, to note that because the year didn't exist in a vacuum. And, um, you know, you mentioned 1977, 78, and some of the examples you gave actually remind me very strongly of things you explore in 1984, whether it's, um, you know, the music movie, you know, you talk about Flashdance and Footloose and um, it even Stop Making Sense, you know, like 84 is just such a great year for music and film, whether it's, you know, high, low or otherwise, but also the tentpole album. I mean, you, you know, Saturday Night Fever, it's like, if that were a single album, that would have, I mean, I mean, I couldn't have sold more anyway, but that, that album seems to really, you know, set a precedent in terms of a, a tentpole record with, with such long legs. Right. Which is what, which was more of an accident than not, because I will say also that one of the reasons Saturday Night Fever has sold so many copies is that each LP was, uh, that, that it was, every sale was a double That's sale nice. because each LP got a sale. That was how the RIAA did it. So, you know, it sold 30 million records, but it may have only sold 15 because it was a double LP. Uh, I don't mean that it was inflated. It's, it's just that that's the math. And it's interesting because that, and it wasn't just Saturday Night Fever. It was Rumors and Hotel California as well. They were these sort of proto tentpole albums. The idea was always and remained for several years after that you put out an album to schedule. Um, the kind of obvious example here is Tapestry, which was followed within a year, within the same year, by another album by Carol King, Writer. And you know they didn't stop the they didn't stop the treadmill because hey, Tapestry is flying out the door. It's going to sell ten million albums. Maybe you can take a break from making albums for a while. We'll let this one go for a while. Nobody was thinking that in 1971, and by 77, 78. They're still not thinking it, but what has happened is that these superstar groups have are now take a year plus to make their albums. Yeah. What Thriller does is to come along and to codify that as the formula. That prior to that, again, you know, rumors was sort of an accident. They didn't think we're gonna get four hit singles off this. They were just making an album that ended up having four hit singles. Whereas with Thriller, they went for an album that was mostly hit singles. And then everybody else started to do that. And of course, MTV plays a significant role here, a huge role. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back to that in a minute. I, I think the, um, the only, as you were speaking, the only band I could think of in the 70s that seemed to intend, or the only superstar that, that seemed to intentionally break the treadmill model 
that I could think of would be maybe Pink Floyd. Like you think about how little output that band actually had in the course of the, the you know, the superstar part of their career. It's probably less than two hours of music in the, in the throughout the seventies. You know. Oh well, that's um, well. I don't think that's true because they were very prolific up to uh, Dark Side on the of the Moon. Like they were putting out an album maybe two a year at that in those earlier years. The and post- then they stopped though from really like seventy one, seventy two to up. Right before the wall, it's really just three albums. Right. It's, yeah, Dark Side is when they start to, we're just going to release these albums on our schedule. But it's also a little bit, um, I would not call Pink Floyd in this or Led Zeppelin because they were not singles oriented acts. Mm -hmm. They didn't release singles. That's right. That was the whole thing with them is that they didn't put out singles. So it was a different sort of paradigm that they were working with. Totally different model. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the, um, the, the sort of crash in the, in the late seventies into 1980, um, of the sort of mainstream music business, like what happened there and how did that set the table for sort of the Renaissance, um, in the early mid eighties? That was the story I wanted to tell more than anything, because the 79 crash was so seismic and had such a long lasting effect. And has basically been shrugged off a lot in pop music history because, you know, it, as I say in the book, it amounted to a blip in the larger scheme of things. It was only a, it was the only real downturn the record business had had uh, from the end of World War II forward up until the 2000s, up until Napster. Um, And what happened there is that the record business was just spending like crazy. And, you know, there were all these labels, Casablanca being the most obvious example, where they were putting out a glut of records that nobody wanted. All of those Kiss solo albums, a lot of disco 12 inches, you know, not just Casablanca, but a lot of labels were just spending money like mad throwing all of this stuff out into the marketplace, whether there was a demand for it or not. Saturday Night Fever is the catalyst. It does so phenomenally well. The movie and the soundtrack and all the singles, they do so phenomenally well that everybody has to make a disco album. Just the way that everybody had to have a rapper on their record around 1990. And the way that everybody had to, you know put out everybody had to do an EDM song in 2011-12 like it was the big uh it was the that was it, it became derigier you had everybody on earth making a disco record from the Rolling Stones and Rod Stewart to Ethel Merman sometimes they were good records and most of the time they were not good records but it also completely and of course I'm as a dance music person Watching the EDM implosion starting around 2015, it was exactly the same as the disco implosion. Everybody was forced to do this thing, whether it applied to them or not. And so disco, you know, there that was a specific market with specific tastemakers. The whole thing about disco was that the DJs were the people who decided what was good. And then you suddenly have all these records come out that are not good or that are not even tailored to real disco DJs. 
they're tailored to something else. They're tailored to, you know, some executive's idea of what a good disco record was. Yeah. And there was a glut of this stuff around 79, like a glut, an absolute glut. And what was happening is the records were getting returned on Moss. Hundreds of thousands of records were getting returned. And, you know, there was no money left. The, the record business, the record industry faced that year in 79, there was an 11% decrease in sales for the first time in decades that had that, had that happened. It hadn't happened before. Uh, the music business was seen as recession proof up until then. So when that happened, it was a big reality check. And one of the knock-on effects is that suddenly record labels couldn't be sending bands on the road with tour support. They couldn't finance the tours. And that's when you start to see the rise of more visible corporate sponsorship for rock mm. tours. That's one of the big effects. Um, you know, artists had to find financing to go on the road in order to make any money. And so, because the, you know, the sales had, has nosedived and the road was where you made your cash. So you start to see Earth, Wind & Fire was an early example. They did a number of high-profile sponsorships. Journey, uh, you know, a number of uh, Hall & Oates, a number of very popular groups were becoming, uh, you know, getting into bed with these corporate sponsors. And one of the points of that, one of the ideas behind that was in order to, to accept corporate sponsorship meant that they could keep the ticket price down. That was the whole reasoning with the Rolling Stones in 1981, which was a game-changing uh, deal that they made with Jovan Musk. They were, you know, here was this perfume company putting their name on the, on the tickets for the Rolling Stones tour. And this, at that point, was the biggest rock tour that had ever happened. And it all leads to the Victory Tour in 84. And the Victory Tour is the Jacksons, and they are sponsored by Pepsi. And we know the story. It's in the book, too. But, you know, I think everybody sort of at least knows the outlines of the story of Michael Jackson being burned during the filming of a Pepsi commercial, you know, has hair catches on fire. And because there is an accident with uh, with a, an explosive device, it, it, it explodes near his head and catches flame. It's terrible. But yeah, like there was a lot of decrying of corporate sponsorship around this time. And that only increased as the 80s progressed because more and more and more artists started to do this. And the reason they started to do it was because the record labels didn't have the money to send them on tour. Do you have a, um, do you have a, um, a qualitative opinion um, as to the impact of that corporate sponsorship, are you a are you a sentimentalist about it? Like, what? How does it fit into as a fan or as a as a critical analysis? Well, at the time, you know, in I guess in the late eighties, early nineties, I was reading a lot about how bad it was, so I sort of aped that at the time. Uh, I at this point, no, I'm not a sentimentalist about it at all, and haven't been for some time because I say, I, you know. Eventually, I came to realize, oh, yeah, this isn't really uh, the evil thing that I think it is. But that's because I don't know all the nuances. Like, I, one thing that I talk about in the book that, and, and, and I wanted to make sure to discuss this as a new thing. This was a new thing. 
to have all of these banners on stage, you know, having like Jovan presents or whatever. I don't know that the Stones did that, but you saw this more and more. Mm -hmm. Product placement became rife during this era. And that was, that was brand new. People were not used to that. And it really messed with people's heads. People were furious about it. Like I, I go see rock and roll because I'm not watching TV. I'm not, I don't want to see an ad. And I, and I absolutely understand that. I feel much the same way myself, but I also, you know, especially in dance music, you know, you're talking about a whole strata of things where corporate sponsorship is very visible. So I remember when I used to work at First Avenue, the club in Minneapolis in the late 90s, and I remember this vividly. Literally, overnight, I went from, I went, you know, I went home one night and I came back the next night to work. And all the white plain paper napkins were gone. And they had all been replaced by black with gold camel cigarettes uh, insignia napkins overnight suddenly there were all of these banners up all around the club that and that became the thing for you know that has been in place ever since then and that was around 1998 so it's more than 20 years ago yeah like i feel like a whole generation of fans is just used to that that's just the way things are well once upon a time that wasn't the case at all and 84 is really when that starts to change yeah, and that that's sort of there's there's a comment about um, 1984 being the last year of the old world, and it seems like it's also equally you know the corollary is it's the first year of the new world, and um, I wonder if you could just tease out some of the anecdotes that are behind that sentiment. You know, some of the things that stuck that stood out for me were cassette sales surpassing vinyl or sort of the mainstreaming or the beginning of the mainstream of the compact disc or on the production side, the, the synthesizer and MIDI technologies. But could, could you explore some of that for me? Oh, uh, you just did actually. Those are, <laughs> those, are, those are the signposts. One reason that 80, I mean, I wouldn't say 84 is the first year of the new world. I would say it's 85 because 85, the specific reason that I called it that was because 85 is when they discovered the hole in the ozone layer and acid rain. So there was a certain cultural innocence that held sway through 84 that just couldn't anymore after 84 because, you know, we found out all these terrible things that were happening on the planet. Um, but those are really good examples. Um, the SSL, the solid state logic, uh, which is a, uh, which is a mixing board in recording studios. And it was the first automated recordings console where you could set the levels and have it saved. And then you could just recall that exact setting if you wanted to go back to it, but you could make all these different settings and you could do it all these different ways. Prior to that, the idea was you set the levels at a certain place for the mix, and then that was the mix. You did this once, where when, whereas with SSL, you could just do it innumerable times, and you could do it forever. And some people did. Lots of people did. <laughs> uh, one, The person I quote him when I talk about that in the second chapter is Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac, who was, you know, enamored of this stuff because he was you know a studio crazy you know he he was a studio rat he 
he rumors took a year in part because he's a perfectionist and they're all perfectionists and you could be a real perfectionist now you could really do it up to the minute and so you'd have all of these record producers who were just like working on the same mix for six months uh there's a great line i didn't end up using it but there was a great line about uh elvis costello was making Goodbye Cruel World in the same studio where Frankie Goes to Hollywood made Relax. And he said, and he talked about how he went into the studio, made the album, went out on tour, decided he didn't like the album and came back. And Frankie Goes to Hollywood was still working on one track. <laughs> A lot of navel gazing going on. A lot of navel not, no, you know, it's not navel gazing. <laughs> it's 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 trying every single thing you can. So, yeah. You know, it, it's it's having it's having a to use Buckingham's metaphor. It's having an infinite color palette, and suddenly you can do all this stuff, and you can try every single thing you ever wanted to try. Yeah, so they it's, do. Yeah, and they Why had not? the money for it. That was the whole thing about superstar rock record making in that period was. You had infinite license to keep going. You could spend two years in the studio and spend millions of dollars on it. And if you were a superstar rock star, you would make the money back. Yeah. The, uh, an, another piece that, um, that's really striking is um, the role that, this, that sales figures play, not only of that in that era, but the way you use them uh, throughout the book to as sort of to, to emphasize or to call out um, I don't know. It's 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 a great sort of exclamation point that you that you that you a device that you use throughout the book, um, and it's what 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 really contrasts for me is um, you know now a number one record could sell eighty thousand copies like it you know the the charts are are all but meaningless outside of the story they allow the marketing they're not an indicator of cultural impact I guess would be the way I would say it and um, I wonder how you uh, how you arrived at that sort of um, that pretense or that, that, um, you know, uh, that tool. Uh... It was natural. I mean, that's, that, that's basic rock historiography. Anyway, if you're writing about chart records, you're going to tell us where they landed. Um, and especially with the story of pop, because that's, you know, the whole idea is that you're trying to make records that people buy and that do well on the charts. Um, it's really, it's interesting because that was true. The only 80,000 records that was true for many years prior to the seventies. It's really the late sixties, early seventies, when the rock sales figures start to really surge and really start to like achieve mass that really starts with the Beatles. Like prior to that Elvis Presley had sold millions of records, but it was just him for the most part. Other people were selling lots of records, but not at that level. And after the Beatles, you have a lot of acts that are selling at that level. So that becomes, it becomes, you know, the, 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 the big, big sales figures had been a commonplace through the 70s and increasing through the 70s. And then during the 79 to 82 slump, the numbers go way down. One thing, it's not in the book, but one, one figure that a lot of people cited at the time was 
you know, Aha, the album by John Cougar Mellencamp. It was the best seller of its year, but it had only, only in quotes, sold three million as opposed to seven or 10 million, which had been the norm for so long. That was another way that the record business was measuring itself as being in the dumps, was that yeah. the biggest seller of the year was only a three million seller. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I feel like it's, it's super important to talk about uh, that year in hip hop and Run DMC in particular. But before we get to Run DMC, could you talk a little bit about hip hop in New York and that intersection with sort of the art scene and the downtown scene, whether it's, you know, some of the no wave artists, the Bill Laswells of the world and those guys who sort of all came together and, and sort of met with the uptown, you know, street party scene and how the art world and the hip hop world came together to really, you know, to really bring hip hop to the mainstream. Yeah, the the art world intersection is a really heavy thing in 82. That's really when it gets going. And 82 is a signature year because of two records in particular, which are The Message by Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five, although that's really a solo Melly Mel record. Well, it's not, but it like it's it's basically only two of the MCs. And the other big record is Planet Rock, which probably gets more mentioned more in the 84 book than almost any 84 record because it had such a gigantic impact. Um, so those, and then that's when the art world starts to pick up on hip hop. That's when graffiti art becomes a substantial part of the art world. Like you have people like Keith Haring collaborating with Futura 2000 who's a graffiti artist, you know, here, like what Herring did was basically he got this kid to like tag these pieces of the, like a vase here, just tag it the way you would tag a wall. And then Herring draws around it, sells the piece for a couple of grand and gives the kid his money. Like, here's your half. And I, I remember reading that in a Herring bio and the kid was just like, you know, Futura was just like his, his mom was like, what is this? <laughs> like, he had, you know, his like his, like Keith Haring had to meet his mom and explain what was up because it was so, you know, so and there were all of these like there was the Times Square show in 1980, which had been a big catalyst for that crossover. A lot of graffiti artists were part of that show. Um, so by 84, that is already well established. What happens in 84 to, you know, that increases hip hop's visibility among the cognoscenti. And then by 84, what's happening is all of these breakdance exploitation movies. And, you know, the, what happens in 84 is that the old school is dead. The old school is gone. And that's kind of symbol symbolized by Grandmaster Flash breaking apart from the Furious Five, breaking away from Sugar Hill Records and signing with Elektra. And in fact, uh, you know, there was a lawsuit over his name. He had to sue to, to retain the name Grandmaster Flash because it was his moniker long before Sugar Hill was a record company putting out rap, rap records. And he had to, you know, fight in court to retain his own name because they were trying to say, oh, anybody can use that name. Grandmaster is a generic street term, which it wasn't. Nobody called themselves that, that until he came along. 
and until well after he came along. So you have all of the old school people who had been making records for five years and were like the kings of the style, suddenly they're irrelevant. Run DMC comes along and makes all that stuff irrelevant. Everybody has to bite them from now on in order to stay competitive in the market. All of that's like all of the Melly Mel style, you know, that kind of rapping was done. Run DMC, like they, they put a fork in it. Uh, and then the breakdancing, you know, breakdancing was such a gigantic fad. It was considered yeah. the big fad of the year. And it was only considered a fad, which is completely grossly unfair and inaccurate. But it was as Michael Holman, who is the, he's the first person who ever used the word hip hop in print. And he was the host and producer of Graffiti Rock. And what he calls it is the law. He, he said, you know, breakdancing is hip hop's loss leader. That's what got it into America's living room. All of these breakdancing crews doing things that seemed aerodynamically impossible to the knots, like spinning on one's head. You know, nobody, th you know, prior to that, I was nine years old. Everybody in my school was trying to do that or talking about it. And by 85, nobody wanted anything to do with it anymore because it had worn out its welcome. But everybody still liked rap, you know? Rap just got better. Hip hop just got more interesting and deeper as music. And the 84 is the beginning of that too because that's when Def Jam forms. That's when the first LL Cool J 12 inch comes out. That's when the Beastie Boys are starting to get serious about rapping. That's, you know, Run DMC are starting to play arenas. There's the first big hip hop tour, uh, the Swatch Watch Fresh Fest. And it was another, another corporate sponsorship, but a cool corporate sponsorship. What was cooler in 1984 than Swatch Watches? <laughs> Nothing. So you have this, so suddenly not only are all of these rap groups, Run DMC, uh, Curtis Blow is still making records, Houdini, they're all playing, they're playing like basketball arenas and selling them out. 27 cities and they gross something like $3 million on that tour. And, you know, by the time Run DMC appears at Live Aid, it's the rare show of that sort that they're not headlining. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, that the book caused me to do was to go back to the first couple of Run DMC records and um, just to hear them again um, after several years, they're so powerful and so different. And it's so, it's, you know, it made total sense in that narrative and it really sets that sort of template of sort of, you know, hip hop always sort of collapsing in on itself or always killing what came before and how that was really the model for years and years and years. You know, we could debate whether that's still true in the last 10 or 15 years, but um, just that it just erases everything before it. And, and those records sound like nothing else and the production and the rock elements um, and that, that sort of in your face um, MC style, just, it's just crisp, crisp. Yeah. Yeah, Incredible. no, like those records were more powerful and like they were powerful as rock records. They got across to rock audiences in, in a very obvious way because they were bigger, louder, more in your face, more attitudinal than most rock was at that point. 
and yeah. most rock has ever been, frankly. Yeah. You know, when watching them perform on graffiti rock is one of the great joys of music fandom. They're just so in command. They're just so, I mean, there's not going to be a better performance you're going to see of hip hop music. They're just like, you'll see things that are as good and you'll see things that are different, but they're just the ease and command that they have is breathtaking. And one thing that I wanted to, you know, make sure that I included, and I'm very glad I did, when DMC is doing his verse of Sucker MCs, the St. John's University verse, and you hear the B-boys in the audience start to go, oh! <laughs> like, if you've ever been to a rap show, you know what this is. This is like the serious, hardcore, mostly male fan base, like, hollering their approval. Like, this is their jam. This is, this is the shit right here. And the fact that that got on to television is great, you know? It was like, oh, wow, this is just like, one of those great things that you have to point out because this is the model. This is the way things are going to be. I've been to many hip hop shows and you hear that during the best verses. That's when, that's when the B-boys are really into it. And it was just fantastic to see that in that show. That's incredible. All right. I, I want to make sure we save time for, uh, for folks to ask some questions, but there's, and there's so much, I mean, we've barely scratched the surface. So I want to make sure I get that message across to everybody. This You're book, all day. <laughs> this book is just, it's phenomenal in the ground it covers. Um, but I, there's a few things I would definitely be remiss if I didn't bring up. And I'll try to intersperse some of this with other people's questions. But um, one thing you came back to a few times in the book or, or people you talked to brought up um, was the idea of um, the no bass line in When Doves Cry or the no bass guitar. And um, I feel like I had known that fact at some point and it just, you know, it didn't resonate with me. Um, and now I hear that song and I can't ignore that fact. Um, what made that so bizarre? Well, because especially in R&B and funk, the bass line is all. The bass line is the, you know, that you, it, you didn't really have a funk or R&B hit even a big mainstream one that didn't have a bass line. The bass was the absolute center of that music and he just stripped it out. He decided it worked better without it. And I have always myself wondered, I don't know that we'll ever get to hear it, but I certainly would love to hear that song with the original bass line. I don't, I have no idea what it would be like. Yeah. None. I mean, yeah. but yeah, that's one of the great mysteries of pop. And apparently he just like decided, well, this what's what do I want and he just chucked it out and was like oh that's what I want you know Prince was a phenomenal talent and a phenomenal listener he had phenomenal ears and he could you know he could make those sorts of adjustments and actually improve or make more uh I mean more unique really like nobody else is going to try this but he would yeah do you know that there was a version with bass? Yes, yes, there was. It had a bass line and then he got rid of it. That was That's incredible. Yeah, that uh, Dwayne Tudal's book about the Purple Rain era studio sessions, which is basically a date by date sessionography, has some good detail on this and pretty much everything else. That book came out in the thick of my writing it and was extremely valuable, is extremely valuable. Uh, 
for what I was writing. And he's working now on a book that covers 85, 86 in the studio, which is Parade and Sign of the Times. So, you know, it's a, it's a gargantuan amount of, uh, of great music in that period. Yeah, yeah. One thing that that strikes me from that era, um, and again, this is a little bit selection bias, so um, I'm fully open for <laughs> for debunking on this. But it, it it it's really stunning to me that the of the solo artists of that era, who are primarily identified or or their careers really were the '80s. So leaving out for a minute, say Phil Collins, who we have to talk about in a second, or even Lionel Richie, but you know. Madonna, George Michael, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, um, Prince, stunning that that four of the five of them aren't with us. That didn't, you know, they didn't they didn't make it. And uh, we're not talking about peripheral players or or you know um, no, second tier artists. Center. The absolute center of that decade. That that's stunning to me. And I, I wonder, do, you know, do you do you ever think about it in that context? And is there another era you can you can I map can- that to? Well, yeah, you can, because that's the late hippie era. That's the late 60s, early 70s, when suddenly, you know, you think about one of the things that made rock sort of mythical was the sudden disappearance of so many of its big stars within a year. Jimmy and Janice and Jim Morrison, they all died within a year of each other. So you saw that kind of thing always. But it's interesting because that was more of an expectation I feel than the premature loss of these folks that we're talking about now, because they were, you know, to put it really bluntly and uh, you know, they were druggies. Whereas we didn't think of the others, you know, we didn't think of George Michael and Whitney Houston and Prince in the eighties as being druggies because that was their whole, their whole self, uh, presentation at that point was the opposite the 80s were like the aerobic decade it was when everybody went and like you know everybody's hitting the gym everybody's living clean even though they weren't always you know Springsteen is still around because Springsteen really didn't take drugs really never did Madonna is the same whereas Michael Jackson and Prince and George Michael and Whitney Houston, we know had drug problems, but they were either not really happening at that point. Although we can look at 84 with the, the Pepsi commercial where yeah. Michael Jackson's hair catches flame. That's when he starts taking painkillers. You know, that's when uh, we know now also that Prince starts taking painkillers after the Purple Rain tour because he is. You know, he's messing, he, he keeps doing the splits and high heels and jumping off pianos and injured his hip. Um, you know, we know that Whitney Houston was doing drugs for a long time without outside the public eye. And I mean, I'm not trying to be a moralist about this at all. I have no issue with that. But there's such a disconnect between what we were shown of these artists, of these public figures at the time. They had very tight control over their public image. And in the 60s, early 70s, it was a much looser sort of thing. It wasn't, you know, it's the difference between rock and pop in the term, in terms of the public mind. The, you know, I've, I've definitely seen people talk about, like when they find out about the book, they go, 84 wasn't a great year for rock. Well, rock isn't in the title. It's pop. <laughs> it's pop for a reason. They're different things and they're, you know, they're different sort of paradigms. 
And that's one reason it took so long for somebody to write a book like this, because in publishing, people don't trust pop fans. They trust rock fans yeah. and hip hop fans. There are dozens of books about hip hop, dozens of books about all manner of punk and everything after. There's very little about pop. So that was something I wanted to redress as well. And as to your actual question about whether any of this, you know, any of these people dying were on my mind when I was writing it. Oh, yeah, because a lot of what I wrote in the book came from obits. Mm. I wrote, a, you know, I wrote a George Michael obituary. I wrote a Prince obituary, both for MTV News. Much of that material makes its way into this. Um, with the last book, you know, Frankie Knuckles died while I was writing The Underground is Massive, and I, and I wound up writing a, an obit about him and utilizing some of the material from the book for that obit. Especially with this book, especially watching all of the people who are at the center of pop during the mid eighties, you know, one, each one dying after the other. Yeah. It was constantly on my mind and it was really helpful in a way to make me go, yeah, I'm doing this because these folks need to be contextualized. It isn't just a matter of memorializing them. It's contextualizing. Um, before I ask any other questions, I just want to let um, everybody who's here, um, if you have a question, please uh, feel free to go into the participants tab and raise your hand and I'm keeping an eye on um, what's in there. Um, so if you have any questions, I will do my best to get to you. Um, one of the other sections of the book that that um, I was not expecting, um, mainly because it was a blind spot in, in that part of the history for me, was um, your piece um, about... Uh, Chicago and the rise of house music in that era. Yes. Um, and uh, again, I just, did, I didn't relate it to that point in time. Um, but again, another sort of important sort of subsequent epoch defining, uh, you know, situation. Could you talk about that a little bit? What was going oh, on? Yeah, there? Absolutely. Um, you know, that 84 is when it starts to be called house music. It had been a little bit before, but it's also the, it's also when people are making the first records of house music. Jesse Saunders puts out On and On on his own label, and they're selling it out of the trunk of the car, and they're selling phenomenal amounts of it. This, this pressing plant in Chicago had opened up on January 1st, and there was, in fact, a, an announcement piece about it in Billboard. And, you know, Chicago Musical Products, I think it was called. And that became the locus of the entire house music, the, the entire Chicago house scene, because it was the only pressing plant in town. And they were notorious crooks. Uh, Larry Sherman, who died the other year, or died last year, I think, like he was a notorious crook. He, he ripped everybody off. He sold things out of the back. I don't go into a lot of that here. I go into some, I do go into it in the underground is massive, but I, you know, that part of it is extremely important that it's in, in New York, the DJ driven dance club has been around for a while, but it's really gaining new traction. And the same thing is happening all over the country. Um, and it relates also to the rise after the 70s of what was called the rock disco. Mm. You know, 
rock and disco, punk and disco were seen as, you know, natural antagonists, but they weren't because they were coming from the same place, but from different areas. And that became more and more apparent as the 80s, as the 80s kicked off. A lot of, you know, if you think about a lot of the early indie rock groups were releasing 12 inch EPs for DJs. They were, you know, think about early, early REM. Think about Chronic Town. Those are records intended to be danced to. Like that is music intended for a living dancing audience. And that was true of a lot of early, you know, early 80s post-punk. It was aimed at clubs. And the club was the locus of a lot of this stuff. And in Chicago, the, the, you know, the really good clubs were the after-hours black gay clubs that Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy were running. And that's the beginning of house music. House music and techno music. And techno, and I'm, I'm one, it's a bad oversight. This is, speaking of things that I didn't get into the book, the fact is that Techno City by Cybotron is released as a single that year, the, uh, you know, around the same time in 83, uh, Cybotron releases its first album. And Cybotron is Rick Davies and Juan Atkins. And Juan Atkins is the man who invented techno. And that's where it starts. You know, Techno City is the first record that comes out that names the style. And even though it's not really a techno record yet. Uh, so techno and house are both happening in a real way in that period. And house and techno are where dance music stops being song-based per se mm. and starts being entirely about the dance floor, entirely for the DJ. That that's a major paradigm shift. Mm. I'm going to uh, shift over to a couple of questions. Uh, Craig, do you want to unmute yourself and uh, ask your question? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think of 1984 and one artist we haven't talked about yet is uh, The Smiths. They released not one, but two records in 1984. And I'm, I'm wondering how you see the Smiths playing into this. I feel like we've talked a lot about American music, but mm. what was that dialogue between the UK and the US in 1984? I'm very happy with the way that that Smiths section turned out. That's actually some of my favorite writing in the book because I had not written about the Smiths. And I had always been a little mystified at the way the Smiths got written about because so often it was by initiates for initiates. There's very little writing about the Smiths that does not, uh, that, that is not aimed for somebody who is already a fan. And I wanted to, and so the fact that I got to like actually try to explain what and who they were at the time was really fun. I had a great time writing that section. And I think the writing itself is some of the best in the book. So I'm very happy you asked. Um, and, and also, you, we can't overlook the fact that in December of that year, they put out, and I, it, I mean, so much is going on that I don't even get to talk about this. They put out How Soon Is Now that December. It was a B-side of a 12-inch. And, you know, if there's one Smith song that stands in for everything, it's that one. And, that, you know, we didn't even get to it just because the, the year is so jam-packed. In Britain, the Smiths were considered like the return of the repressed in the sense that they were a, uh, they were on an indie label. 
And it was possible to be on an indie label and still storm the charts in Britain at that point, which was just not possible in America. Um, so they were on rough trade. They were, they were having top 10 hits. Morrissey was a pop star. One thing that I didn't include is there's a show called Pop Quiz, and it was him versus George Michael. And it was the two of them, like, you know, competing for pop, you know, for supreme pop knowledge on this quiz show. And George Michael trounced Morrissey. It wasn't even close. It was, you know, which is a really great thing. You know, it, it says a lot about George Michael. What a fan he was. How, yeah. how much he knew how much of a scholar of pop he was. And Morrissey was sort of that, but in a very refusenik sort of way. Uh, he, in America, he became, you know, the poet of the of of the black clad teenager who you who just doesn't think you understand anything about them, <laughs> and which is a great thing for a pop star to be because at that point, mainstream pop was full of people who wanted to play in the big field, and so. In the, in the United States, I mean, I was in high school in the late 80s and early 90s, and the Morrissey fans, the Smiths fans, were just a different breed than the pop fans. They did not meet. But in Britain, they were absolutely one and the same because the Smiths were in smash hits just like Adamant and Duran Duran. Yeah, there, I mean, and you keep bringing, there's so if we had hours, we could, we didn't touch on Duran Duran. We didn't touch on Adam Ant. Um, anyway, let me, uh, there's some other folks with questions. Uh, Ant, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah. Uh, and I, if, speed me through this LP, I had to step away for about 10 minutes in the middle, just in case you cover this, but Michelangelo, thank you so much for this. I cannot wait to read the book. Uh, I'm very um, proud and grateful to work around a lot of um, folks whose music nerdery is next level. Uh, they know a lot about a lot of different genres of music and I get the benefit of it. Um, you take it to like 100x that. Uh, just watching you talk about both the business side, the artistry, the trends, etc. There's just encyclopedic knowledge clearly from which that is derived. Um, I'm curious about your process. Uh, like, how did you go about researching this? And unlike other topics you have to research, like I could see myself on day one, just getting lost in a record and just listening to an album the whole day instead of doing the <laughs> research part of it. Like, well, you get lost in the research too, which is basically what happened a lot with, uh, with this. As I said, one thing I said earlier is that um, it took about a year and a half from deciding that I was going to do this for real to having an outline of it that was filled in because it wasn't merely getting lost in the research. It was trying to get my head around the fact that I was, you know, the fact that so much was going on and all of it required some attention. Um, I also wanted and, and now that I've done it, it's obvious and clear, but at the time what I was having trouble articulating was this is not a biz book and this is not a book of profiles of artists, it's both. They have to both be part of this in order for it to do what I want it to do. So that, and, and that does tend, you know, music books tend to bifurcate along those lines. 
There are lots of great biz books and there are lots of great artist-based bio books or, you know, histories, but the two don't often intersect on the same pages. And that was something that I, I needed to do because so much of what makes it a narrative is derived from the biz. And then what makes it go, what makes it interesting is the artists. So in terms of how I did it, uh, you know, I was, the first thing you do, I think, or the first thing I did, whenever, whenever I have a new project, whenever I'm going to write a book, the first thing I do is raid my shelves. I go to my books, I grab everything that I think I'm going to want or need that might or might, you know, might be useful. And those are the things that I go through first. I just grab everything, see what's there and start. And then I, you know, I was going through Google books, had a lot of, has a lot of periodicals. And I went through a lot of those, particularly the Johnson publishing stuff, which are Ebony, Jet, Black Enterprise, all these African-American publications. And that I knew I was going to need a lot of that because so much of the black music of the time was not paid attention to by mainstream press. And I got a lot of books out of the library. I started reading a lot of bios. There's, there was no master narrative of pop in the 80s to draw from outside of specific essays and things, but there are loads of individual artist memoirs. You know, I read like the John Taylor and the Andy Taylor memoirs for Duran Duran. And the John Taylor book in The Pleasure Group in particular was a lot of fun to read. He's a, he's a garrulous narrator and he clearly loves his fans. And he's clearly a geek. He clearly, truly loves and understands music at a fan level. And that was a thing that always impressed me about Duran Duran and especially did when I was researching. But so I have a lot of like anthologies and things like that, you know, omnibus collections of music writing. And there would always be stuff about the 80s, but the 80s themselves were not the focus, are not generally the focus of a lot of the big rock books. Uh, so that was very helpful to kind of, you know, whittle out those things and put them together and see what I had, was, which was, okay, there's quite a lot here. There's a website that is called World Radio History. It used to be called American Radio History. And they have a ridiculous collection of radio-based trade magazines. And it's expanded beyond that now. But that, you know, I, on Google Books... They had about a year and a half missing from 83 to 84 of issues of Billboard. Like it was the first four months of 83 and the last three months of 84. And so I thought, well, I'll work around this. But then I found on World Radio History, they had every issue of Billboard. So I read every issue of Billboard from 84. I went through each of them and, you know, did a lot of screenshots a lot of screenshots. And then as I was working, oh, and another, another major thing was the, like Punk Never Happened is this blog spot that has every issue of smash hits from like 78 to 88 or something like that. So I availed myself of every issue of smash hits from 84 and I read through all of those. And then as I kept going, I would check back world radio history and it was like, oh my God, they have every radio and records. I have to go through these. Oh, fuck, they have every cash box. It was like once a month I would check back and it'd be like, oh God, I have to go through all of these again. 
And that staggered out the writing time for sure. But the Minneapolis Public Library, I moved back here in February of 16, about six months after I had started working on this project. And the Minneapolis Public Library has a world-class music books and periodicals collection. And I would literally just go there every day and go through the open stacks where they have the, uh, you know, the research material that you can't check out. And they have all of these gigantic omnibus, like every issue of, you know, blank magazine or, you know, a lot of microfilm and as well as a lot of books. And I went there pretty much every day for about three months with my phone camera and took tons and tons and tons of pictures of uh, book pages and magazine pages and screenshots of the, the, uh, of the microfilm. And I maybe went through, I probably actually went through maybe 40% of what I gathered. So, you know, I had a lot to work with. And then I talked to people as well. So I definitely, you know, I, I, I went nuts with the research and that is my way as generally speaking. Uh, I definitely lost myself in the research a lot. Uh, there's just so much to look through. And also I wanted to keep it fairly open. I did not want to, because you find things that you're not expecting. And I definitely over-researched that one. Uh, and I'm glad I did because it paid off. It, it, I found tons of great things that I just didn't know about. Very cool. Hey, Opie, can I ask one quick follow-up? Of course. I'm born in August. So I was, uh, well, I won't say how old I was then. Uh, if I woke up on August 21st, I'm just, I'm testing your database and I'll <laughs> work. So if I woke up, woke up on August 21st as a, as a pop music kid, what was this, what was the tape I put in my cassette player? No idea. <laughs> Let's see what the book says, because there are some dates here. <laughs> what was the date? August 21st. Oh, I thought it was August 12th. One of the chapters is August 12th, 1984. See, flip it. That's Lionel Richie, right? That's the, the Olympics. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that. I wrote the damn thing. <laughs> no, I don't tell have a calendar date sort of memory that way. It goes from August 12th to September 14th, which is uh, Radio City Music Hall for the MTV Awards. Um, want to We need to talk about Lionel Richie for a second anyway. Want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. How about the Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you want to know? Or what are you asking? Or you want me to just go? Well, um, it's, impo- you know, Lionel Richie and Phil Collins, as it relates to 1984 um, and, and the year before and after, I would, I would think, um, you know, just ridiculous. For many years before and after. Yeah. And it, what you would reminded me also um, was the Lionel Richie's intersection and impact on country music of that time. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, you know, so I don't know how most people here think of Lionel Richie if they think of him at all, but I would wager that not most folks think of him as somebody who had an impact on contemporary country music. I don't know about that because he wrote, you know, he wrote big hits for Kenny Rogers in the nineties or two thousands. I forget when he did an entire album of country duets, you know, he's, uh, one of my favorite lines uh, in the research was Dave Marsh, the critic, who 
pointed out that Lionel Richie didn't just write country songs, he wrote country politan ones. And that's a pretty significant uh, differential because country politan was like strings and very genteel. It was this, it was this very like weepy style of, of songwriting that took, that kind of took hold in the sixties. They were very much MOR crossovers, like middle of the road crossovers. And so that was a big part of his makeup. I mean, he's from Alabama. He grew up on the Tuskegee Institute campus. Country music was going to make its way to him just by dint of where he's from, you know? And that's true of a lot of, you know, it's, it's always, it's, I can never think, oh, that's surprising when I meet anybody from the South who likes country music. It's just, you know, that's, that's the landscape. And he, you know, he, he was a story songwriter in some sense. He was into the, you know, he, he, he was writing, he was writing heartwarming songs for, you know, older folks. And he, he had a huge older fan base too. He appealed to all ages. Uh, Can't Slow Down, the album, was really the first time that he, as a solo artist, it was his second solo album, like in the Commodores, everybody else supplied the funk and Lionel wrote the ballads. For Can't Slow Down, he had to start writing his own up-tempo dance material. You know, that wasn't what he had been known for prior to that. So, um, and then Lady, which was... uh, the Kenny Rogers song that was six weeks at number one pop never mind country yeah. you know that won a number of uh country music awards you know for best recording and things like that like he was in the Nashville songwriters uh uh uh, uh guild I think uh so yeah no Lionel Richie was already well uh, you know, the country audience was well aware of Lionel Richie prior to Stuck On You, which was the song that uh, wound up charting on the country chart. But it wasn't the first time he had had a song on country radio. Sail On by the Commodores had been, you know, there's a lot of twang in that song, despite the sort of sweeping M.O.R. R&B arrangement. So, yeah, he had he, he was already a natural for that. It was already happening. Uh, and then when I was in Nashville doing research for the country music chapter, and this was total kismet, but I'm at the Nashville library and I'm going through the date, you know, the banner and forget the name of the other daily paper they had there at the time, but they, they had two dailies and I'm going through these, I'm going through May because I'm looking for previews of the fanfare in early June. And, you know, I'm just like also just trying to measure the landscape. And that happens to be when Lionel Richie performs in Nashville. (laughs) So I happen to see the daily papers reviews of the show and the news pieces that surround it. it was like, oh, well, this is just perfect. So I had that stuff at the ready. And when I wrote the Lionel chapter, I got to include all that. And that was, you know, great, a great windfall for me. I, lo- I love how he has an almost antagonistic relationship with tempo <laughs> and in terms of not wanting to have any in his biggest hits. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. If I, I don't know. If they, I, 
just because it's not a very Lionel thing to be antagonistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I would question that a little bit, that's but you know, your, your basic point is right. <laughs> uh, we have a couple more questions. Let me, uh, let me make sure. Um, Alexandra, do you want to unmute yourself and uh, ask your question? Hey, um, so my question is, you mentioned Beach Street being kind of like a breakdance exploitation movie. Breakdance exploitation. Are there any movies from that era that you think accurately represent that culture, like mm. Crush Groove or... Wild Style. Wild Style? It's Wild Style. Wild Style is a little earlier and, oh, it's, yeah, it's late 83, but it really gets a wide re release in 84. And that's easily the best of those movies. Beat Street was... Uh, I'll break these down a little bit. So Beat Street was the Hollywood version of the hip hop story. And it was intended to be the Hollywood version. It was intended because it's the executive producer was Harry Belafonte. And Harry Belafonte was not a person who was that attuned to hip hop, but he was somebody, you know, he was a marquee name. He was extremely important, you know, as a power broker particularly in black America, like he had juice, real status. And that, so his attachment to it meant that it had a certain sort of, uh, uh, ah, what's the word I want? A little, it, it, he's prestigious, so he lends his prestige to this thing. And at the time, the idea seemed to be, well, if you don't add this prestige to the thing, it's just going to be some dumb kid thing. Um, and the movie Breakin was literally made to circumvent the box office of Beat Street. It was literally made for this reason. The people at Canon Films, whose biggest star was Chuck Norris, decided we're going to, they read about Beat Street in the trades and decided we're going to do this ourselves and we're going to beat them to it. And they had the entire movie made and out in six weeks. Six weeks. Because they were going to beat Beat Street to the theaters. Wild Style exists outside of that paradigm. That was actually a movie that was made by people in the scene and involved people in the scene as something other than, well, we're going to, get, we're going to tell you you're a technical consultant or whatever. Um, and so Beat Street was like the... Beat Street was the big payday movie, and Breakin was the insurgent little, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my lemonade stand before you open your lemonade shop. And then Wild Style was just like an actual movie from the culture about the culture. But Beat Street, I'm sorry, Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo was out by December. And I think they took a whole two months to make that one. I just have to say, as a as a suburban Connecticut kid in that era, I remember that influx of those films coming to the local showcase cinemas, and um, we all lined up with our parachute pants um, and, and your uh, cardboard. Yeah, I, I I was not that bold, um, but there was definitely cardboard. Um, a lot of white kids on cardboard in the suburbs back that during that, yeah, that just, era. Just to, just to explain that the cardboard is what you would break dance on. You would bring, you would bring a big piece of cardboard to do your moves on rather than like getting, you know, you couldn't spin on the ground, but you could spin on the cardboard. You could spin on the ground, but you would like ruin your clothes. 
Yeah. Before we get to Justin, who has uh, our, our last question from the audience, um, of the sort of four pillars of hip hop being, you know, emceeing, DJing, graffiti and breakdancing, it seems where is breakdancing in the in the wh- is breakdancing not. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be at the same level as the other three pillars. No, that's one of the four elements, b-boying, dancing. And where is it now? How is it? I mean, you. I think you talked about it in terms of was the fad nature of it ultimately, um, did it ultimately work against it as a legacy or as something with, with longevity? In the short term it did, but I don't think generally. I mean, by now it is an accepted part of the whole lexicon, although it's not widespread now. It's basically a you know, it's like Lindy hopping. It's 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 seen as a as emblematic of its era, and people still do it, but it's a specialty. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, Justin, want to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, it's actually a perfect segue because uh, so for background, yeah, I I was heavily influenced as a suburban white kid living outside of San Francisco um, when uh, Beat Street. Break in, break into Electric Boogaloo came out, but also um, by movies that were kind of along the same vein, Crush Groove in '86 uh, or, or '85, and and Rad, the the BMX biking movie that came out um, the year after that. Um, and, and I was in the perfect like age frame to really like just soak that in and think that I was part of those movements. Um, so really, really interesting. But one um, movie in 1984 that sticks out above all the others um, was Ghostbusters. And the, mm. um, the soundtrack for Ghostbusters that literally like every um, minivan <laughs> that was driving around um, suburban streets, you would just hear, you know, uh, Ray Parker Jr. And that song, you just couldn't get away from it. Um, so my question is, um, do you believe that um, the early 80s or, or 84, maybe specifically with Purple Rain and, and things like that, do you believe that um, that gave way to um, filmmakers or people that want to try to influence pop culture in some major way, building these kind of um, like marquee names like a Rad or a Crush Groove or, or whatever to kind of let their music or their whatever they're trying to push to pop culture um, kind of infiltrate quicker? Well, what happens is, and there, I had a lot of stuff about this that I ended up cutting for space, but that what happens is that the soundtrack becomes the, you know, of the loss leader in a way that it hadn't been before. You again, we were talking. We were talking earlier about how Saturday Night Fever and rumors and Hotel California became the sort of pre premature version of the tentpole album. And by the mid '80s, you know, I, I was just talking about how Breakin' the whole thing was done in six weeks. Everything about it, and that was sort of true for soundtracks generally. A lot of the time, they were put together last minute. They were put together by. Uh, one important person in this period is Irving Azoff, who wound up becoming like a soundtrack king. He put together soundtracks for certain movies, uh, some of them which he was producing, like Fast Times at Richmond High, which has a pretty, you know, of its time soundtrack. 
littered, go figure, with Irving Azoff's managerial clients. Um, and like a really good example, this was in an issue of Variety in 84. It's Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer who had had such a phenomenal success with, uh, you know, they'd put together Flashdance, they'd put together Beverly Hills Cop. And I remember this, they were talking about, they're going to be a lot more in, this is not the word they would have used then, but intentional about how they were going to put the soundtracks together. They were going to give themselves more time to really find the stuff. And they were doing this for their next movie, Top Gun. So you have that, that becomes more and more important that you have a hit filled soundtrack and you, you know, there was always like a big artist that had a leftover from the sessions of their album that they could contribute. Um, another major thing here is, uh, is not a film. It's Miami Vice. Miami yeah. Vice was a phenomenally uh, successful. It wasn't a phenomenally sex successful show. It was not a big ratings hit, but it was a big critical hit. Like I think, I think Miami Vice was like the number 20 show of its first year and it just kept sliding down from there. Um, I mean, it was on Saturday nights, you know, people were not home, but it was, you know, they put out a soundtrack album in early 85. The, the title song became a top 40 hit. Um, the, you think about the first episode and there's Phil Collins in the air tonight is like the central thing, the central song and the soundtrack but it's not the only song there's six different records in that show and what what that show changes is incidental music you know you didn't often have recordings of well known you know well-known records on tv shows unless it was somebody lip-syncing to it on solid gold or whatever or a video show um you would have that maybe if like a musician was guest starring, you know, you think of like, uh, you think <laughs> the of Doobie, Doobie brothers, brothers on what's on happening. What's happening. <laughs> yes. Or you think of, uh, or you think of my other favorite example is Ray Parker jr. On, on, uh, what was the Nell Carter show? Uh, give me a break or El DeBarge on the facts of life. That's when you would hear those records. But with Miami Vice, it was just the records. They licensed the original records. They didn't have it on in the background either. It was integral to the scene. It was part of the actual, you know, the soundtrack was as important as the dialogue. And by the time of Beverly Hills Cop, it's wall-to-wall -wall music. It's wall-to-wall -wall records. It's not just like compositional music or a score. It's records. So that's really what happens in that period is that, movies and TV start to become wall-to-wall -wall soundtracks. By the way, that, that Jan Hammer jam for the Miami Vice theme is, I mean, it's just so of the, so of the era. Um, but I, I would also encourage everybody, I don't know if it's on YouTube, but if you could find the Doobie Brothers on what's happening, um, it is probably one of the most <laughs> surreal juxtapositions of... Uh, yeah, Jeff Scott Baxter is not an actor. No, no. And like, I don't... I, I'm not... Go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I was just gonna I was just gonna crack that yeah, watching those guys like woodenly recite their lines is pretty priceless. And I'm skeptical that the kids in what's happening were listening to the Doobie brothers, but um what do I know? Um I don't know. I mean you never you never know. I you mean, never know. 
One, I mean, actually that, you know, one thing about this period is because MTV was essentially a national radio station and so many local stations began programming video shows because it was cheap, easy programming that a lot of stuff from that, you know, a lot of unexpected crossovers were happening. Um, Cindy Lauper and Phil Collins were selling records in like West, like on Chicago's West and South sides, which are heavily black, like because they were getting video play. They, they, were, <clears throat> they weren't even getting MTV play. They were getting play on local stations that were programming videos. So you, you know, I remember, I mean, Phil Collins I mean, there's lots, there, there is a lot of stuff that has been written about Phil Collins as a weirdly popular crossover artist going from, for the black audience. And certainly he was making what amounted to R and B records. I mean, he, you know, he makes the Philip Bailey record Mm -hmm. together. You know, they make that album together. Phil Collins was a big, big figure and those records you know, people liked those records. They what you know, it wasn't just for one audience. That was and, high quality pop music, though. Those yes, are, and, just... and crossover is really the it, it's the through line throughout the book. The whole idea is that a lot of these people wanted a bigger audience and they wanted to cross over. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of intention behind a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't see any other hands raised, so uh, I think we'll we'll. Uh, we should we should release you back into the wild, um, Michelangelo. <laughs> um, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, yes, thank and, you. And uh, thank you so much for the book. It's uh, everybody you saw it. Um, it's it's linked uh, internally to all the stuff. I highly highly encourage you to spend some time with it. Um, I blew through it rather quickly. I'm probably going to go back and read it again. Um, I loved it. I I truly loved it. That's what um, I like to hear. Yeah, it, it brought me back. Um, it, it reconnected me with a lot of music um, that I hadn't listened to or thought about in a while. And for that, I'm very grateful because there is a lot of great music from that era um, in the mainstream and on the fringes. Um, so thank you. It's great having you. And congratulations on your book. Thank you so much. All right. Be well. Thank you, Lauren Rosenthal at Hachette, for helping make this discussion happen. Thank you, Michelangelo Matos, for spending time with us. Thank you, Caitlin Flood, Crystal Jackson, John Carr, Craig Snyder, and the entire team at Light. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our new website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Once again, thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.